How many of us know that the songs we listen to tend to stick with us a lot longer after the song has ended? Many of us think of songs, even when the music's not playing, and perhaps we didn't even hear the songs for months, if not years, perhaps even decades. So as I was preparing this message today about this profound truth, the Word made flesh, I couldn't help but think of a song from when I was a soon-to-be college student. came out in 1995. So some of the young people here will have no idea what I'm talking about. Trimmed by a lady named Joan Osborne, and Joan Osborne's style was kind of like our alternative music. But this song was so popular that it played on every single radio station. It played on the rock stations. It played on the alternative stations. It played on the pop stations. It even played on the country stations. This song was called One of Us, and it's all about God. It asked the question that John chapter 1, verse 14 is going to answer for us. But listen, I'm not going to read the, all the lyrics. I'm definitely not going to sing it. You're welcome. But listen to how Joan articulates this question, also the implications of this question. It's profound. So she asked in this song, One of Us, what if God was one of us? Just a slob like one of us. Just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. If God had a face, what would it look like? And would you want to see it if seeing it meant, listen to this, that you would have to believe in things like heaven and Jesus and the saints and the prophets? What if God was one of us, just a slob like one of us? Interesting, right? Shocking. Not only interesting because she's asking a question that many people have asked throughout human history. If there is a God, what if he became one of us? The idea of God's dwelling amongst people is not necessarily unique to Christianity, although Jesus is, and what you're about to hear is. But what was so fascinating about this song, not only then, but even now as I study this text, is that she very, very transparently admitted that what if God had a face, what would it be like And what if it meant that I actually had to believe in Jesus? What if God was one of us? And what if I had to believe in the law and the prophets and miracles in heaven? As if to say, what if God was one of us? I had to believe in Jesus, but I didn't want to. I would refuse to. That, sure enough, is not only the paradox of the human condition, but that is what John is proclaiming here in the Gospel of John. This question, is there a God? Is he a detached clockmaker who made all the intricate mechanisms of this cosmic clock but just sits back and watches the tick? It's called deism. Or is he invested? Is he a personable God? Has he dwelt among us. 
It's not only the question that pop singers ask. It's the question that ancient philosophers used to ask too. Listen to this from none other than Socrates. Socrates said this, Oh, that someone would arise, man or God, to show us God. Oh, that someone would arise, man or God, to show us God. Now, what's fascinating about that statement is that Socrates, even though his first passion was philosophy, he was completely surrounded by Hellenistic uh, 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 pagan worship, polytheistic worship, where there were fables and stories about God dwelling with men, as if to say Socrates is looking past all of that. He didn't believe it for a second, but what if it actually did happen? I didn't believe in the fables of Hellenistic Greek mythology, but what if there is really a God and it happened? Plato even goes on to say this. Listen, friends. Unless a God-man comes to us and reveals to us the supreme being, listen, there is no help or hope. Plato was on to something very, very interesting. Without knowing Christ, without knowing the fullness of the gospel, he understood that there is a gulf. There's a huge chasm between creator and created. Do we get that, friends? There's really only two categories. When you go to the cereal aisle at the supermarket, lots of categories. When you talk about everything, there's only two. Creator, created. These philosophers understood, even on some kind of abstract way, without the revelation of Scripture, that there must be a clear gulf and chasm between creator and created, between God and man. And the only bridge could possibly be to, to give help and to give hope would be if God himself would show the way. So what has always been the hope of the Old Testament prophets? That a Messiah would come. That God, who dwelt amongst tabernacles and temples, would send a king, an anointed king, that would bring forth a kingdom that would last forever. So you see, this is not only the songs of pop stars and philosophers, it's also the thoughts of astronauts. There's a fascinating story of an astronaut. His name is James Irwin. James Irwin is one of the few people to ever walk on the moon. Can you envision that? Can you envision being on the moon and looking at our planet from that lens and from that vantage point? Astounding. So listen to this testimony. This is remarkable. James Irwin is on the moon, and as he stood upon the lunar landscape and looked up at the earth, he prayed for the first time in his life. He thought about all the strife among the nations, the poverty, the hunger, the rampant evil, and he thought to himself, what is more important than man walking on the moon is that God would walk on the earth. As if to say, how many of us are astounded at the thought that we can send somebody to the moon, right? I can barely make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and we're sending people to walk on the face of the moon. Astounding. Even more astounding to be one of them. Envision it. This person, this astronaut, James Irwin, says this. It's not astounding to be on the moon. What would be astounding is if God 
came and dwelt amongst men, if heaven came to earth. Sure enough, that is the message of all Scripture. Old Testament and new, old covenant and new, Genesis to Revelation, that yes, there is a gulf, there is a chasm, and it's not just ontological, meaning it's not just about being, it's also about spirit and soul. It's about holiness. There's a chasm that no astronaut can cover. There's a chasm that no philosopher can outthink. There's, there's a chasm that no pop star can somehow sing and fill that gap. We needed God himself to cross over that chasm to be, to be our Savior. The Gospel of John has been proclaiming this from its very first words. You remember John chapter 1, verse 1? It says, describing Jesus as the Word of God, in the beginning was the Word. And what's the Word, church? Jesus. The Word was with God, and the Word was God, and God made everything that is through the Word. And then he's continued to teach about who this Word is, that this Word isn't just some kind of ethereal, abstract force. No, it's a person, knowable. You can know this Word. You can hear this Word. This Word made you, and this Word can remake you. This Word that gave you physical life, as we studied last week, gives you spiritual new birth and new life. That this word came into our world, the world he created, and the world did not receive him. This word came as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets, yet his own people did not receive him. You remember verse 13? Those who did receive him know what? God made children of God. He made them born of God. So when we come to Scripture, and we come to specifically John chapter 1, verse 14, you might think to yourself how remarkable it is that God dwelt amongst men. How truly astounding and unfathomable for us to wrap our minds around how this works. But not everyone is going to see this as glorious. Not everyone is going to see this as great as Joan Osborne said, what if it was true? What if God dwelt amongst us and I had to believe in Jesus? As if to say, I probably wouldn't want to. We need spiritual new birth, new sight, new life, and a new nature. Let's look at John chapter 1, verse 14, friends. It starts out like this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That Word is none other than the Word of God. So how do we understand Jesus becoming flesh? God taking on humanity. Well, think of it this way. God is fully in Christ, and Christ is fully human, okay? So Colossians chapter 2, chapter two verse 9 puts it this way. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Meaning that in Jesus Christ, all of God dwells. Simultaneously and perfectly, that doesn't make Jesus any less human, right? Jesus is, in fact, entirely human. 
The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, he was tempted in every single way. He is our perfect high priest. And yet what? Did not sin, right? He did not sin. So Jesus is perfectly God, perfectly man. He is not some kind of religious version of Superman. How many of us know Superman, right? You've seen the cartoons. Your kids are reading the comic books, maybe watching the movie. But we tend to look at Jesus almost like Superman and Clark Kent. Whereas when Clark puts on the glasses and he puts on the mild manner reporter's outfit and he starts acting really clumsy, we tend to think that's how Jesus is. When God became flesh, he's just pretending to be one of us. But underneath, he's got his big red S, he's got his big red cape, and he's always been invulnerable. What does it mean that Superman was tempted? Superman experienced trials. Superman was even killed. And this kryptonite was not something of comic books. It was us. It was our sin. No, Jesus was, in fact, entirely human and entirely God. He is the Word made flesh. Charles Spurgeon put it like this. There is a place where God does still meet with man and hold fellowship with him. That place is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in whom dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. How many people have ever talked to someone that wants to go somewhere geographically to meet with God? Well, part of it is we, think, we tend to think there's holy people and there's holy places, right? And there's holy paths and holy programs. Okay, so this is what makes Christianity and Christ so unique. Is that, yes, that gulf that was created in the Garden of Eden, where God made everyone and anything and everything good, he made Adam and Eve our first parents and said it was very good. But because of our sin, because of the ways the serpent, that liar, that deceiver, he deceived us and we partook of the fruits. There has been a chasm and a gulf that we can't, we can't dwell in the perfect, holy presence of God. And that's why we were thrown from paradise. We were thrown from the garden. Remember how he used to describe God? Remember Genesis 1 and 2? God would walk with them in the cool of the day. Isn't that so neat? And then what happens? Sin. Distrust. Discord. Violence. Because of that, God can't coexist in the same way with man that he did in the garden. So, throughout the Old Testament, we see a foreshadow of Christ. Throughout the Old Testament, especially clearly in the book of Exodus, around chapters 33 through 35, you can read about how God had established a tabernacle. Can everyone say tabernacle? And then later on, during the reign of Solomon, a temple. This would be a place that God would convene and meet with his people, that he would create a holy of holies here on earth. And that's why there was all those Levitical laws, all those rules about holiness and about how the priests would have to go through all these purification rites because God would reveal his presence on earth. And because we cannot coexist in the perfect presence of God, we needed to be purified. So what would happen is they would describe this place as skene or saka, which means 
God dwelling with his people. And that's why when we come to John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, the word made flesh, and then what? What does it say? Dwelt among us. The actual word there is tabernacled. In Christ, God tented. God tented and tabernacled amongst us. So in the same way that God would reveal his glory to Moses, and in the tent of the meeting, Moses would get, like through a veil, a little glimpse of the glory of God, and it would truly be astounding. Here's what's interesting. So we, the scholars call that Shekinah glory. Can everyone say Shekinah glory? You feeling the spirit move yet or what? Shekinah glory, meaning that it is the physical manifestation of God's glory on earth. When John says here in John chapter 1, verse 14, that the word made flesh and dwelt, tabernacle, tented among us, and then it speaks of the glory, the glory twice of the Son of the Father. Here's what's amazing. What used to be residing in a tent, in a tabernacle, is now residing in a person. Jesus Christ is the living, breathing Shekinah glory of God, the physical manifestation of God's glory. And it is. He is. All all together, astounding. James Montgomery Boyce put it like this. Think of it. Jesus entered a human birth to give us new spiritual birth. Jesus occupied a stable that we might occupy a mansion, a heavenly mansion. Jesus had an earthly mother so that we might have a heavenly father. Jesus became a prisoner so that we might be set free. Jesus left his glory to give us glory. Jesus was poor that we might be rich. Jesus was welcomed by shepherds at his birth so that through our new birth, one day we could be welcomed by angels. Jesus was hunted down by Herod that we might be delivered from the grasp of Satan himself. Glory. We're all pursuing glory right now, currently. Yes, you are. You're all looking for it. We all craved it. We're all designed and made for it. But sin, sin has affected and infected every part of our hearts. So whereas we are made to reflect the glory of God, now we want that glory for ourselves. So much so that the glory of God revealed in Christ is not something that everyone thought was glorious. No, in fact, instead of people falling down on their face and saying, behold the glory of God, God dwelling with his people, Jesus Christ is God amongst us. He's tented, he's tabernacled. What great news, we're not forgotten, we're loved. Instead of that leading to people falling down on their face in worship, what happened? They went down, bent down, and grabbed a rock to stone him and kill him. To throw him off a cliff. To defame his name. Distort his words. To crucify him. Betray him. Deny him. And leave him to die. Why? Because the truth is that our sickness, our cancer goes a whole lot deeper than we thought, that we really, really need grace. I heard a story of a young kid, a little girl actually, who had a really bad fight with her brother at the dinner table. 
and I know your kids never fight at the dinner table, but just uh, take, take my word for this. A little girl had a big fight with her brother at the dinner table, and when the mother came in, the mother said, what got into you? Why did you let the devil put into your head that it was okay to kick your brother in the shins and to pull his hair? And the little girl thought about it for a second, and she said, well, mommy, it might have been the devil's idea to kick him in the shins, but it was my idea to pull his hair. As if to say she understood. She understood she had a role to play in this. She understood her ownership of her anger and her violence. She understood the truth. And that's sure enough where this verse goes. The Word of God became flesh, dwelt among us. He, as it says here, is the glory. The glory of the only Son from the Father. And then what? Full of what, church? Full of? Grace and truth. So what's so interesting is, is that we tend to err on one side or the other as people, don't we? Like there's people that are grace people and there's people that are truth people. And then what's hilarious is that grace people tend to marry truth people. And it creates all kinds of interesting conversations. Grace people. Grace people that would overlook truth just for the sake of some kind of supposed uh, unity. Truth people who don't care how you feel, you're going to hear the truth even if it hurts. <laughs> what we need is both. Amen? We need both. And here's, here's, this is not, all right, trying to figure out the balance between grace and truth. No, no, no. The message is Jesus is both. Jesus is grace and truth. Jesus is the embodiment of both. You're going to find not only people that emphasize grace and truth over and against each other, you're going to find churches that do it too. You're going to find churches under the banner of grace that promote licentiousness. And then you're going to also see churches that under the supposed banner of truth are just a hotbed for self-righteous legalism. We've lost sight of the one who's full of both. The one who's the author of both. The one who said, by the way, I am what? The way, the truth, and the life. Jesus himself. It's all about him. It's always been about him. So grace without truth doesn't help, and truth without grace doesn't heal. Grace without truth doesn't help, and truth without grace does not heal. We need both. We need need him. So there is a direct correlation between how much we understand, appreciate, and comprehend the grace of God and how much we understand, appreciate, and comprehend the truth of God. Okay? Direct correlation. That's why what I'm about to say is going to be very offensive to some of us that aren't familiar with the Bible, aren't familiar with the teachings and the words of Christ. What is the truth? The truth about us as a people, the truth about humanity, what is the truth? It's that we're made in the image of God. You have intrinsic worth. God himself knit you together in your mother's womb. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. God himself created you. But because of our sin, because of our rebellion, because of this cancer that feeds at our soul, and because of our nature that constantly battles against God, here is the truth. Ready? 
we are hopelessly lost, totally depraved, rebels, dead in our sin, blind to our sin, and angry at God. We are deserving of God's wrath. We are deserving of His eternal hell. We are deserving of His right justice. It's always been the truth. Always been the case. It's not by accident that our culture doesn't believe in hell anymore. Part of the reason is because churches stopped teaching it. Because we think we're more compassionate than Jesus, who spoke of hell more than anyone else in all your Bible. No, until we understand the depth that Jesus went to save us from the reality and the truth of our sinfulness, we won't appreciate grace, right? Thomas Watson, Puritan writer, put it like this. Sin has the devil for its father, shame for its companion, and death for its wages. Paul David Tripp put it like this. Sin plays havoc with our spiritual vision. Although we are able to see the sin of others with specificity and clarity, we tend to be blind to our own sin. And the most dangerous aspect of this already dangerous condition is that spiritually blind people tend to be blind to what? Their own blindness. Sin not only uh, uh, separates us from God, not only fills us with guilt and shame, not only leads to distrust in our relationships, it blinds us. And that's why right now all of us are thinking the sermon is meant for the person sitting next to you. I don't know why we're laughing. It's true. Oh, man, I hope this person's paying attention right now. I know the Holy Spirit can move, but I better give him a little church elbow. Make sure you're paying attention. He's talking to you. Blind. We're blind. Deaf and dumb. Dead in our sin. Paul David Tripp put it like this again. The DNA of sin is selfishness. Sin inserts me into the middle of the universe. The one place reserved for God and God alone, sin reduces my field of concern down to my wants, my needs, and my feelings. Sin really does make it all about me. True or false? It's almost like the Bible's reaching out its hand and saying, Hi, I'm reality. Have we met? It's true. It's always been true. Without Christ, it'll always be true. Once we understand the truth, does the grace of God become more necessary? Not only functionally, does the grace of God become more beautiful? That God died for us while we are still dead in our sins. That Christ came for us even, even as we were rebelling against him. That his love is more lavish, his grace is more boundless, his mercy is more inexhaustible than we ever thought. Think of it. How big is God, church? Big. He's big. He's real big. When the Bible says that Jesus is the fullness of truth and grace and the fullness of God himself on earth, that means when we think of the bigness of God, the majesty of the universe, all the stars, all the galaxies, every single little atom. God is big. 
And yet what hinders so many Christians in their growth, in their worship, in their walk, in the pursuit of truth is that they think God's grace is very small. He doesn't have enough grace for me today. I did that thing that I've been doing over and over again for the last several years, if not my whole life. There's not enough grace. Once again, if the enemy can't lead you to not believe in God, the enemy will lead you to shrink your belief of how big God is. Clearly, the same creator of the universe, his vastness, his greatness, his bigness, if Jesus is the fullness of God, the fullness of truth and the fullness of grace, surely there is grace for you. Surely the one who bled and died on the cross, God, the word made flesh, was broken so that we could be made whole, who died so we could live. Surely there is grace for you and for me, abundant, boundless, inexhaustible grace. Do you believe it? Now, some of us were like, all right, Pastor, you were doing good when you are talking about truth and sin. Good job. Got to be careful when you talk about grace. You got to be real careful when you start talking about grace. Because that means people can do what they want when you start talking about grace. What a worldly way to think about it, right? Read Romans chapter 6. The answer is all in there. The truth is, if it's real grace and real new birth that changes our hearts, changes our desires... So we don't manipulate God and we don't dismiss God. We don't manipulate God through our self-righteous acts of religion and we don't dismiss God because of the cross and the blood that Jesus spilt for that grace. No, what happens? We love God and we're grateful for God and he changes our hearts so that we would follow hard after God. So we wouldn't want to sin anymore. He would change us even as he changes our future. I'll close with this quote, Martin Luther. He says it like this, talking about the inexhaustible grace of Jesus Christ. The spring of grace is inexhaustible. It is full of grace and truth from God. It never loses anything, no matter how much we draw. It remains an infinite fountain of all grace and truth. Jesus Christ, our Lord, is the infinite source of all grace, so that if the whole world would draw enough grace and truth from it, to make the whole world turn into angels, yet it would not lose a single drop. The fountain always runs over, always runs over, full of grace. Do you believe that? Do you believe there's grace for you? Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for your truth. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would take the words of the Gospel of John, the words of Scripture, the testimony of Christ, and do what only you can do now. Do what only your Spirit can do now. And that is lead us to the reality of who we are and the reality of who you are. Lead us to the beauty of the Gospel. But as you do that, it leads us to the reality of our sin that we need to turn we need to turn back to you, back to grace, and turn from our sin. So Heavenly Father, would you send your spirit to do that now, to work so in our hearts 
that the thought of sin would be repugnant to us and the thought of grace would be intoxicating. That we would love and run and trust not in our works or our deeds, but in the finished, final, forever work of Christ on the cross. Friends, let's rise together and stand, shall we?